Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. I'm Kate Norris. I'm Thomas Craft. And we're here to help you plan, design, and deliver your best presentation. Welcome, bosses. It's the Big 8-0, episode 80 of the Presentation Boss Podcast. And today we're having a conversation with another guest who was recommended to us by a previous other guest. So thank you to Andrew Tarvin for putting us in touch with today's guest. And new to the podcast today is an Irish accent. We're used to the American accent and the Australian accent, but it's our first Irish one today. Although I have to admit he does some brilliant accents throughout. He's very good at impressions. Yeah, he had a crack at both an American and Australian at least. Yeah. (laughs) So I'll put in touch with David because he is also a speaker trainer, but he does specialize a little bit in what he calls hacking public speaking. So he talks a bit about humor. Uh, He's done stand-up comedy. He has some great techniques and such that are even talked about on his website. So he knew this was going to be a valuable conversation. And indeed, there is quite a few tools and techniques that David Nihill shares in this conversation. So before we hear a little bit more about today's guest, I do want to remind you that we do have our growing Facebook community. If you would like to join the conversation, head to Facebook and join the group Presentation Bosses. There is a link down in the description below. So Kate, why don't you now tell us a little bit more about David Nihill? Alrighty. David Nihill is the author of the best-selling book, Do You Talk Funny? and the founder of Funny Biz Conference. His work has been featured in Inc., Lifehacker, The Huffington Post, Fast Company, Entrepreneur, Forbes, NPR, The Wall Street Journal, The Irish Independent, TV3, News Talk, TED, and The Irish Times. He's a sought-after international business speaker and also performs stand-up comedy and was the winner of the prestigious 43rd Annual San Francisco International Comedy Competition. Previous winners were Robin Williams and Ellen. As a lecturer, he's taught at Stanford Graduate Business School, UC Berkeley, University of Oxford, and University College Dublin. A graduate of the UCD Michael Smurfit Graduate Business School, he called San Francisco home when immigration officials permit and was named on the Irish America 100 list, which recognizes the accomplishments of the best and brightest Irish American and Irish born leaders. So welcome David Nihill to the Presentation Boss podcast. Thank you very much. Um, so David, we've heard your official bio that you've sent through, but we want to know who's the man behind the official bio there? Well, that would have to be me, although you renamed me Marty a moment ago, so I could be Marty as well. That one was nicely edited out. I, I, the man behind the bio is a confused individual currently sitting in Ireland who lived in Australia for a while and also about 14 different countries, so the accent's all over the place. I don't even know what I'm talking about half the time. So that bio is just to remind me what I've been doing for the last few weeks in a way as if it was written by my mother. I think, I'm not sure. I could talk about myself in the third person, but I've never seen someone who's mentally sane or capable who'll refer to themselves comfortably in the third person. So I better avoid doing that. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've got sucked way too deep into public speaking. I like kite surfing a lot. I love traveling around and I have a lot of love for Australia where I got to call home for nearly a year. Um, so that, that would be probably me. Yeah, awesome. So you've uh, you're, you've done some stand-up comedy, you've done TED Talks, uh, you're a speaker trainer. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your work now? So who do you help and, and how did you get involved in that? 
Yeah, it was a weird one. I just wanted to help myself at the start, to be honest. I didn't really care about anyone else. I mean, I was the bumbling, sweaty mess that was having a lot of problems with, with public speaking in, in every aspect of my professional life. And it was definitely holding me back and, and blocking certain things. And I was avoiding it. And I only ever tried to figure out how to get over it for myself. And then I said, well, I wonder if this would be helpful to anyone else. So I put it in a course. At the time, there's a platform called Udemy, and they had just launched and I knew one of the guys who was their head of courses at the start. And he said, oh, you should do one and put in there the content you've been learning about public speaking. I, I had no idea how to create a course in any way. But I was like, it forced me to at least see, could I explain this in logical sense to a group of strangers? And it allowed me, you know, Irish people are a bit like Australians. If you're doing something different, they'll be like, what, what do you think you're doing? That, that doesn't make <laughs> any sense. Like, and they'll be very quick to uh, make fun of you in the most loveliest way, shape or form, especially in Ireland. If I was like, oh, I'm going to produce some mild self-help content around public speaking, they'd be like, go back to America, Tony Robbins. Uh, <laughs> it, it wouldn't go down well. So I wanted to hide that from all my friends. I wanted to hide it from everyone because I was just on a bit of a career break at the time. So I put it in this course. I put it on Udemy. The nice thing there was they did all the marketing. They did all the promotion. They were growing rapidly at the time, as was online courses in general. So they were pushing a group of strangers towards my content who I got to continuously engage with because they'd actually paid some amount of money. It wasn't for free. So they were invested in figuring out what I had to say. And at the time, it was just my voice over slides. The production content was horrendous. If I had to lock myself in a room in the dark and just fuel myself with alcohol for two days and not talk to anyone, I think I'd come up with a better product than what I had at the time. It wasn't good, but the techniques were good and applicable and it made logical sense, I think, to anyone who listened to it. And if it didn't, they were pretty quick to tell me and I changed it. So I just, I honed and I honed that and I changed it continuously as strangers were taking it to the point where it made sense to everybody. And they were like, oh, we really like this. And at that point, actually, I transcribed it because I never thought I'd be able to re uh, write a book because I was dyslexic. And I was like, you know what, this might make a good book, but I don't want to sit there like most people sit there and look at a blank page in front of me. So let me transcribe all the teachings of the course. So now all of a sudden I'm looking at 60,000 words that I have to I have to shorten. So it all kind of spurned out of that. One of the first people to contact me privately through the course was like, hey, do you take on private clients? And I was like, I thought it was one of my friends in Ireland taking the mickey out of me. And I was like, oh, yes, I do. But on a very exclusive basis. And he wrote back on, well, I was a shark on the original Shark Tank. I'm worth like 400 million. I launched all these products. And I was like, oh, this is actually, I didn't think it was serious because the email address was something like badgers at AOL74.com or something. I was like, this is not a real email, but it was. But yeah, they flew out and met with us. And I, I figured, well, I'm no expert in this. I better draw in some help. Worked on a number of his talks and then a business grew out of that when we're like, let's help high level people who are already quite accomplished at speaking just to punch up the content that they have or rework it and make it more effective. So yeah, everything can be trying to trace back to that dodgy Udemy course um, that I put out, but at least it gave me a method and an audience and a community to test out my madness and see if it would only help me or would also help other people. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, right. So um, I find it really interesting. You said at the beginning, like the quality of it was really rubbish, but the techniques were good. And this is a question we've asked of quite a few of our guests of what is more important, content or delivery? And I'm really hearing there that content is where it's at. Oh, I, I, especially in the world of public speaking. I think it's a cheesy expression that content is king, but I learned it. I remember doing a public speaking. It was a storytelling competition, which is run by National Public Radio in America, the Moth, and you do their competition where 
it, it's a bit harrowing because live audience members who you've never met before, they, they assign three groups and they rate your story from one to 10. So it's a bit like the diving in the Olympics where someone holds up a card with your number on it. And to me, I was just in my mind, it was like nearly losing. I was afraid of public speaking. So to me, this was like losing my virginity and somebody popping up at the end of the bed with a number <laughs> oh on their God. heart to, to rate my performance. I mean, oh like two, I need to learn some more stuff. And it was quite a harrowing experience. But I remember one night this lady went and she was from China and her English was not that clear and her delivery was horrendous. She just looked at her feet for most of it. And her story was so good and so relatable about trying to fit in with her Jewish husband's family in America and making a recipe that she got wrong. And it was just a total disaster scenario. But through her putting in the effort to get to know their culture a bit, the family fell in love with her and they lived happily ever after. And the story was just so good. It, it beat the life out of everyone else who was on there. There was all these people that were experts in public speaking and experts in delivery and stage performers, and they were all beaten out by a little old Chinese lady who wasn't legibly talking in a way you could fully understand, but it was enough to get the story. And I went from that event to another competition where, again, there was all these comedians and expert storytellers and paid stage professionals. And the guy who went last just read his words off a bit of paper. There was no delivery. In it, there was no anything. He said, I'm a writer. To be honest, I'm not a performer. I don't know how to perform. But here's a story I wrote. I want to share it. He wiped the floor with everybody. So it's just num numerous times I've seen that, that content always trumps delivery. I've seen comedians get up and just fold their arms and stand there in a way that every body language expert and public speaking trainer would say you shouldn't do that. And they could teach you for two days on that. Like when, when I do public speaking, I put my hands in my pockets a lot of the time because I'm kind of comfortable, but I'm happy when I'm doing it. So I don't care. And if I'm on video, I've done that. I think I have a Google talk online somewhere where I'm, I'm just standing there with my hands in my pockets. Nobody seems to care if I'm being genuine because part of me being genuine is sometimes doing that. So for me, every single time content trumps delivery and it pains me deeply when I go into a, a corporate company or something and I sit in on a training of a public speaking, some expert they come in with a video camera and they say, say words into this video camera, we'll record you. And then we're going to watch you being completely terrible because you were unprepared and uncomfortable being on camera. And then we're going to teach you to be better by the end of the day. And they, of course, you get better by the end of the day, because if you prepare from words and say them back into a camera, you're going to be better the second time. So they're all their focus is on delivery because they have no expertise with content creation because they're not on stage that like 10,000 hours the most stage professionals take to figure out, okay, how do I speak for being on the stage? So I think content always trumps delivery. And I think the problem with modern day public speaking and why it becomes still a problem for so many people is the people helping them are focused on delivery and they just give them 50 other things to be nervous about. What am I doing with my hands? Did I touch my face? Where am I walking? Am I standing? Am I speaking too fast? And the emphasis goes away from just being you and being genuine. So much that I think the question that we get more than any other is what do I do with my hands? I'm like, stop thinking about your hands for starters. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, stick them up your, I'm like, it doesn't matter. Just do, yeah. don't do anything too insane and nobody will really notice. And it, I think if you watch Dave Eggers, he has a TED talk, which is absolutely fantastic. And in this talk, he is doing something that public speaking trainers a lot would refer to as petting the hamster. So he's aggressively rubbing his hands together and coupling them like he's holding an yep. imaginary little ball of fur. And it's a bit of a default maneuver for most people. And he does it so aggressively, it looks like he's competing to be the world champion in hamster <laughs> pet. 
in this TED talk, but within the 58 first 15 seconds, he does what any good comedian would do ever. He acknowledges the obvious of what's happening and then nobody cares anymore. He's like, Hey, I, and I just figured out when I'm nervous, I do this continues to do it. Everybody laughs out loud. And then that way for the rest of his talk, nobody thinks it's strange when he does it. So I think your hand movement, what you should do with your hands, all that stuff only becomes relevant if you're doing something extremely unusual on the high level of, okay, that's a bit wacky and not talking about it. Mm. But it's it's that kind of, you would have heard old hack cliche public speaking advice saying if something goes wrong, just work through it, just stick to your plan, keep going. And a comedian is like, don't do that. That That is a horrendous plan. Like I saw a fellow once and the, the fire alarm started going off. That's not a moment to keep going with your presentation. He was like, oh, I only have 15 slides here. Let me keep going. And we're like, no, man, the room's on fire. And yeah. we're going to leave now. So like his only course of action in that moment is to acknowledge what's happening. And you either abandon it, but nobody wants him to keep going in that moment. They want him to talk about what's happening. So if you keep speaking, well, there's an obvious distraction. You look incompetent and you look separate as an entity from the audience. Mm. But if you acknowledge everything that happens with the audience, everything that they can see and feel and likely think on your words, whether the room is too hot or too cold, whether somebody comes in late, no matter what it is, you have to talk about it because you're, you're breaking that fort wall between you and the audience. Up to that moment, it's them evaluating you and you're just giving a speech, but you become one of them when you acknowledge those little things to happen in the moment. And I just think, yeah, a lot of people just forget that and they don't train on it. And they're like, keep going. Whereas a comedian would stop and go, well, this is going horribly wrong and just acknowledge the obvious failure of it. And everyone laughs nervously and just moves on. So it's like, it, I don't know, it just, it just is a bit of showing what's really happening to the audience and that you're aware of what's going on on stage rather than just going into default. I memorize these words. I will move my hands like this. I will walk to this position when I say this word. That all goes out the window when the, the fire alarm goes off. So li- listening to you now and even seeing some of some of your work out there, you really do leverage the use of stand-up comedy techniques. Other than what we've just heard, why is that? I think it's important because the average person who practices for public speaking practices an environment that's just too supportive and not conducive to real life. So you can go to Toastmasters and they will tell you you're amazing for six years. And then you come across an audience that doesn't really like you and is not familiar with you. They're not going to clap and applaud your every word and give you the same support. You're stealing their time nearly if you're not doing a good job. I think if you were to find the extremes of public speaking, you're going to go pretty quickly to stand-up comedy. If you ask anyone what's one of the world's most challenging professions that involves speaking, stand-up comedy is one where they paid you to entertain them, and they're going to be pretty angry if you don't say something interesting in about 30 to 45 seconds. So I just there's no medium that I'm familiar in the world where people put in so many repetitions in an environment that's so unfriendly and forces you to learn to speak in effective sound bites. But nobody ever gets less funny by doing stand-up comedy. So the person you meet on the first day doing stand-up comedy to the person you meet, if they stick with it for a number of years, they're not comparable. Not whatsoever. They never, ever get worse at stand-up comedy. It's impossible because they get better at applying certain techniques. They know and live off the techniques because they repeat them more than anybody else. And I think that's what a lot of people in the world of public speaking miss, that they're not identifying the techniques to give them the highest level of success because they're not on stage with enough frequency. So if you get to study stand-up comedy, you quickly realize that all the best talks are full of techniques that are very common and very well used in the world of stand-up comedy. They're just not known to business speaking community so they usually can't explain it and tackle it 
So using joke structure, for example, is just a way of telling a story more effectively. What's the minimum amount of words I can use to make the most impact? What's the most impactful word I have? Well, surely I should move that to the end because that creates a natural pause at the end of the sentence and facilitates the reaction from the audience. And the beauty with a story is if you do it in a story, if people laugh, happy days. But if they don't, there's no downside. You're never going to bomb like you're going to bomb in comedy because nobody in the oh, audience yeah. expected you to be funny. But like you, you can die a debt in the world of comedy because everything you say, there's an expectation to be funny. But in the world of business talks, there never is unless the audience know you're trying to be funny. So if you get up there and share the words, I'm going to share you a joke with you, they are going to potentially hate you before you even start on that joke. So your your telegraphed intention gives it a huge risk of failure. But if you just apply comedians techniques, like putting the key word at the end of the sentence, using the rule of three, introducing three elements when you can, and then flipping the last element. So you have a natural setup, a natural cadence of one, two, and then the switch with the keyword at the end. If you force your stories into that structure, they become more concise and effective. And something you taught might take you four minutes to deliver. You can now be a very effective 30 second delivery. Yeah, so true. Um, I've done a little bit of stand up comedy and uh, it is it is the harshest environment. And I think like when you give a joke and no one laughs, you were just slammed with this feeling of like, I am never doing that again. Like it hits you really hard. And I think like you're so forced to to learn on your feet. And when you've got a good joke, like feeling again, when someone laughs, the feeling is so good of like, I have to do that again. And it, the feeling is so strong one way or another. I think it's, I think it's the best place. It's hard. It's so hard, but it's the best place to learn. It's very hard. But if you're going to be a professional speaker in any way, shape or form, you have to be entertaining. You have no choice. How much people are willing yeah. to pay you is directly correlated to how engaging you can be when you're on stage and is much more powerful to be funny. So you can you can make a living as a speaker without being funny, but you can't make a good living as a speaker without being funny. So yeah. over time, you have to do it. And I, I think stand-up comedy, the interesting thing is when you start out, everybody tries to tell a joke. It's about a topic. It's an easy target. A lot of the time, it's about your body in a way that's mildly inappropriate or goes slightly on the dirty or the blue side. But over time, as a comedian, because a comedian's goals initially are driven by five-minute segments. The most time you're like likely to, to get typically is a five-minute slot. So everything has to be short, effective, and they're expecting you to generate kind of five to six laughs per minute. And to get something that tight takes a long time, and it usually cannot be story-orientated. There's only there's a handful of people ever in history in America, for example, who have done a late-night TV slot stand-up comedy. Jay Larson is a good example of one with a prank call, or you might've seen the viral videos very worth checking out where he gets a call from someone by mistake and he pretends to work at the company and just keeps going with everything they're saying about their budget meetings and reviews. And that was one of the times in late night television where they said, you know what, normally it's five minutes, but we're going to give this guy seven minutes. We just really want him to tell him that story that badly. And what he was doing is something that normally takes comedians six to seven years to learn that all of a sudden now you're not being booked to do five or 10 minutes. You're the headliner. You're being booked to do an hour. And when you do an hour, you, most comedians can't do it effectively. It's just to set up punchline jokes for an hour. So they delve into their own personal life and they start telling longer form stories. And that's what we're trying to shortcut by studying stand-up comedy is realize what does a really accomplished seven year, eight year, 10 year veteran comedian do that's different to the one in their first or second year. And I think the difference is more personal content 
content, relatable, less jokes that you could interpret as a joke and more it just happens to be funny storytelling. But it takes a long time to get them to realize like, oh, the stuff I have that really kills is just the true stuff that happened to me, is unique to me and couldn't happen to anybody else. It's not a unique perspective on a certain topic that many people have touched on before. So I think that for professional speakers, if you can take from that learning and go, all right, let me try and be the seven-year, eight-year veteran comedian and apply those techniques to business content where the standards are so low. You could never do, you you probably couldn't apply that technique and go into the world of stand-up comedy, but in professional speaking or any form of business speaking, they're like, here's 30 minutes, go for it. So like you really have a chance to build in that storytelling, but just force yourself to tell them beforehand, write them out beforehand, rewrite them beforehand and eliminate any words or things that just don't need to be in there. Yeah, I love that that editing down idea, pull words Mm. out, make it tight, concise. Um, So what about if you are in, let's say, a team or you're a manager of a team and you've got some content to deliver that might be typically dry or, you know, seen as boring? What are some techniques that we can use to make that content a little less boring? I did. I wrote a piece a couple of years ago for Inc. Magazine. It was an interview with LinkedIn's head of content. He was a guy called Jason Miller. And the approach, I think we both documented it, was to ask yourself, what would Jerry Seinfeld do? So if you, if Jerry Seinfeld was a writer in that room with you and he just happened to be working on your content team for whatever tech startup it was, which is probably an unlikely scenario, but what would he do? What would a team of comedians do with that content to bring it to life? And I think one of the first things you would do is home in on the frustration points. So if you have a business or you have a solution or you have a product, it's normally a solution or it's normally as a result of some frustrating experience that could be better. So the number one thing is what is the frustration or pain point that your content is addressing and exaggerate that frustration or pain point. That's funny. A lot of mistakes companies make sometimes is they attack other companies who aren't doing as good a job with the services their company could potentially do, whereas the real humor and relatability is in how frustrating is that. So the, the example I used to like using was Uber Conference. They were one of the first conference call companies to go online and they just made fun of how terrible conference calls were with all the dial-in numbers and the beep and the interruptions and people coming and going from between it and the distractions of it. So they just made a funny video that was two and a half minutes long that went viral about a topic that none of us are interested in, but all of us suffer the consequences of. So I think that the first thing you could probably do is just what are the pain points and frustrations of this topic you're dealing with and just play around with that. Like if I want to make fun of public speaking, people who coach it, it really annoys me that they turn up with their camera and their tripod on the first day. And the person's like, say some words into this camera and let's see how bad you are. Like I said earlier, that just drives me bonkers. So I've like never even this, heard this, of that technique, to be honest, of. Yeah, oh, I've that's seen every, that every company in the States, that's their go-to plan. Like the person Gosh. training has never been on stage. They turn up with a camera in hand. They have no experience. So they've been trained to train you. So when you start talking about content, they take it back to delivery because they've never been creating the content. They haven't worked with people. They haven't worked on it for themselves. So they're mm-hmm. like, here's our 10-step plan to make you a better speaker, but none of it involves content. And you're like, oh, all right. What do we do? What should I say here? How should I open this? Say it goes horribly wrong. What should I do at the start? Say the audience get up and leave or no one's listening to me. What should I do? No, no, delivery. Here's some more delivery techniques. No, but I... That just feels like adding band-aids to the problem rather than fixing any sort of underlying mm. what, are, what are we trying to achieve here. It, mm. it, it is 100%, That's but it's bizarre. funny. It, it, it does tackle human nature, though, where you want to see that you have a problem, learn that you have a problem, and they work with you to solve that problem. So even though you didn't know you were that bad on camera, they've made you feel good about being on camera. So you felt like you made progress in that day. So all these programs yeah, right. are highly rated. 
So it becomes mm. just a weird cycle where people are getting worse and worse training, but they actually feel quite good about it. And then if I end up working with them, I'm like, who told you to do that? No, you can't do that. And so oh, it, it's a weird yeah. one. But yeah, so you have boring content, definitely focus on the frustration and pain points. If the content is really boring, link it to something that is not boring. So Sarah Cooper is really good at doing this. She spoke at my conference a number of times and she's a comedian that just blew up in America by doing uh, impressions of Donald Trump lip syncing him. So she's probably the biggest, most viral star in comedy terms in America through COVID and lockdown. But her old job was working with Google and she was turning a lot of, she created a lot of great content that you would say is traditionally boring. She did it by linking it to fun topics. So she was like, well, what if your coworkers were rappers? Like, what would their names be? And I think she had one call, like, uh, it was the notorious work from home, the person who's never in the office. Or you had like a two cent who, a good person who keeps giving you their unsolicited opinions in the office. And it just became fun. This is boring, everyday, monotonous stuff that she's put two topics that don't go together together. So I like rappers. I like rap music. Let me combine them with office workers and see, can I come up with something fun? So if you're into surfing or you're into cricket or you're into rugby, whatever it may be see can you link two topics mash them up that don't normally go together and that's that's the crux of a lot of great comedy in life i'd say the last way maybe is the last easy tip for you is to create an analogy so just force yourself to complete the sentence this is a bit like as if and then off you go so you're explained complex turn put into every day like yesterday i was trying to do one that I'll make background noise of a page turn in here for a moment. Oh, yeah, it was the end of history illusion. So that's a pretty complex term that most people haven't heard of sometimes. It's, it's essentially, it's the belief that we assume that things are now how they will always continue to be. So, but how would you illustrate that to someone? We were talking with a guy in a good way of doing it might be that your mother, when you go home to visit your parents and they're like, oh, I made you, I made you Tim Tam, I have some Tim Tams here for you. And I have some Lucozade and I have this other drink, you know, you love those. And you're like, I love those when I was seven. But it's just things that you used to like when you were a kid that if I told you, you're, oh no, you're, you're going to keep your Tim Tams are going to stop selling them. You're like, well, I better buy a whole warehouse full of them now to stock up on them. So 40 year old me can live on Tim Tams. Maybe 40 year old you doesn't like them at all. You have no way of predicting that change coming. Although realistically, it's pretty predictable. Our preferences change over time, but we don't think they will. So an analogy in that case is just humanize the waffle you're trying to say that's boring and put it in very understandable terms. There's a great marketing book called Surely You Must Be Joking, Mr. Feynman. Mm. And I think uh, it's quoted a lot. He, he's a guy who won a Nobel Prize and he was a yeah. physicist and all sorts of crazy stuff. But his dad used to try and explain to him every night concepts of size and distance. And he said his dad would never just say a number. The number had to relate to something. So he's like, son, the, the height that I'm talking about, it's if we had a T-Rex dinosaur and the dinosaur is that big that he can actually, your, your bedroom's on the second floor of the house. He can look in the second floor of the house window and he's going to be eye to eye to. That's the size where talking so his dad always had a visual reference for explaining any topic that could be put to the kid in a way that he knew he would enjoy and i think that's what people are missing when they put out boring content they say oh there's i have no time to make this more interesting but the reality is you do you just haven't found a way yet and the way is some form of analogy that allows people to understand so I think those three things might be the most rapidly helpful for boring content, frustrations and pain point, add some analogies and mix and mash things up that don't usually go together. I can totally see how those would work. I love that. Hmm. Jumping back a little bit, we're talking about, you know, questionable advice and training that happens. You get that advice that is to get rid of PowerPoint and not use it at all. I'm sure you've heard this. What are your thoughts on that advice to not use PowerPoint? 
I see PowerPoint as a powerful tool. Any form of presentation aid is a tool that allows you to get more entertainment value out of your talk. So it's kind of like comedy is one of the only industries that hasn't worked to build in as much visual aids as they possibly could take advantage. And I think the one person who did that was Hassan Minaj, and he did a whole special in the States and grew a TV show out of it where he built in all the visual aids and elements that we're used to seeing. And there's another comedian in the States called Pat Hazel, who was voted one of the funniest people in America and used to be a writer on Seinfeld. And he used visual aids at the end as callbacks to everything he told you about. So basically gave him an extra laugh for every time he got a laugh. It was a callback, but it really humanized all the content because you actually got to see the things he described. And I think visual aids, if you're not a great speaker or you want to up the entertainment value in what you're speaking, are a huge tool that most people don't take advantage of in a way that you should use it like you use your telephone. Like you're not going to put six million words on there. You're not going to be sharing graphs with your friends unless the graphs are really, really good. Like what would you share with your mates via social media? That's the kind of short form stuff that should be on your presentation. You should watch them. There's a stand-up comedy clip by a guy called Don Macmillan making fun of the use of PowerPoint in presentations. He's gone viral a whole bunch of Mm -hmm. times. He, he hits on all the pain points of bad use of, of PowerPoint. But yeah, I think the advice to take PowerPoint away as a medium completely is kind of off because it's a, it's a nice, easy tool that allows you to illustrate your points. And when we communicate visually, it's pretty insane that we wouldn't use that within a talk. So like, you know, if you're, if you're one per minute and you're not more than five words on a slide, PowerPoint can be a fine tool. I prefer using Prezi, which I find much better. I like using Prezi video in the world of virtual I like Prezi Prezi just because it takes them on a visual journey. And if you do the graphics right, you're also, you're taking them on a visual storytelling journey. But yeah, I think the answer to your question, I think that's strange advice to never use PowerPoint as a tool because it can be very, very helpful to you. Any form of presentation software to you, it allows you to generate extra laugh and visualize to your audience exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Like if you're telling me a story about your mother and you have a crazy looking photo of your mother, you show that everybody laughs. Like it's, it's, it's the easiest Mr. X. I love that. I love the idea that you can use your visuals to add more entertainment value to your, to your presentation. Well, it's, yeah. it's funny. There's a, there's a friend of mine, Jill, who used to be very senior in a, a leading company. And funny enough, she was asked to go speak in Sydney and she was asked to talk about the period of hyperinflation that her company had just gone through. And the easiest way to improve her presentation, because she was panicking a bit last minute about doing it, was to just put in visuals. So rather than tell people how she felt on the inside, going through all that change of being in a company that was scaling rapidly and she's responsible for hiring people and everyone's asking her every day a million things and she's feeling very stressed and can't get it done. She's like, here's a picture of me in my office. And what I like to draw your attention to is how calm and collected I look in this picture when in the inside, I looked like this. Now your automatic question when she says that is what does she look like? So you want to see the photo. You're like, this is interesting. But in the world of comedy, she's now created a misdirect and that photo is not going to show the audience what they think it's going to show. So when the photo comes up, it's a picture of a little girl who just happens to look a bit like her getting blasted in the face with water from an out of control fire hydrant. And everybody laughs. They laugh because the flip of expectation, the punchline that a comedian use has been delivered by an image. So if you make the image the punchline, and then comment on the image as a tagline, images are really powerful to up the engagement in your talk. The mistake people make with images is they put up a funny image and they stare at it and go, look at that, who's laughing? Huh? 
who's with me. There's no misdirect here. So sometimes the image is funny enough to talk about and get a laugh from just by showing it. But often you need to misdirect the audience and say, oh, I really felt like this. And it could be a monkey flying off a cliff or it could be lemmings going off. You know, just anything that they're not expecting and then talk about the image. So you can't, there's a, I worked with a CEO recently and in the image, everybody was eating pizza at this party, but he was eating cake. He was the only one with a piece of cake in his hat. So he's like, you have to draw attention to that. The audience are like, you really don't like pizza. You went straight for that cake. So just by acknowledging their likely thoughts, which is the sense, uh, the essence of comedy sometimes, what are they thinking when I say this? Can I acknowledge their likely thoughts? That's going to get me an extra laugh. And it's the exact same with visuals in, in the world of whether it's PowerPoint or Prezi or whatever your medium, build up the image, build a misdirect to the image, explain the image, move on from the image. So if you're going to use it, have a real reason to use it and just don't put stuff in there for the hell of it. Like don't treat it like a quote. Here's a quote from Oscar Wilde because I really like Oscar Wilde. And then you stumble oh, to yeah. pronounce the quote and you have to read it while looking at the presentation. So don't do that. That's not what yeah. PowerPoint is for, but that's PowerPoint for 80% of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. So David, of course, um, we did a really good stalk of you <laughs> before this interview. We've watched, you know, some of your content and your, and your comedy and everything. Um, and on your website, we found a very interesting list. And that list was called nine ways to tell if your current public speaking trainer needs to be changed. And first of all, thank goodness we don't do any of that. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been yeah. confronting, yes. Otherwise I probably would have just ignored it. Um, but I was wondering if we could just pluck out a couple of them and um, I want to hear a little bit more about your philosophy around them. Um, yeah, do it. If, if you were stalking me and that's the worst you came up with, I, I think we're doing pretty good. <laughs> so the one that stuck out to me was they tell you to speak slowly, even though you don't naturally do this and you end up sounding like a GPS while your audience is rerouting. Yeah, thank. well, that's true. I speak naturally pretty fast. And I think the only advice that's ever relevant in the world is public speaking is speak at whatever pace you're comfortable at speaking, but slow down for your key point. That's it. Like you couldn't deliver a joke as a comedian in high speed. It wouldn't make sense. You, you have to slow down to facilitate the reaction moments. So you're indicating to the audience by standing still, stationary. It's the same thing when they're like, whether you should move around the stage or not move around the stage. It doesn't really matter. Some people like to work a stage. Some are perfectly happy standing completely still, but you should be standing completely still when you make a key point. So the two, the two things are linked. When you have a key point, you should stand still, slow down the speaking a little bit and allow people time to react. But the thing is, if you, if you structured all your sentences like a comedian, you would have naturally facilitated the pause point by putting the keyword at the end and taking a break. So like you'd never deliver an important metric. That metric would never be at the end of the sentence, for example, or never be in the middle of the sentence. So you'd never say an 80% growth rate year on year. You'd say year on year, we had a growth rate of 80%. So you facilitate the natural pause at the exact right moment. If I'm building up a big story and the reveal and the magic actor, the reveal and the joke is that there's a cat was in a box. I'd never say the cat was in a box. I'd say in that box was a cat. And that's the key word. You're like, oh, it all makes sense at the end. So I think there was a John Acuff joke I used to use there. John Acuff is a leading business speaker and it gets paid a lot and studies comedians over everything. He told me he's watched 100 comedians for every business speaker he'd ever watched. And it's a beautiful short story of him going, describing a conversation between his mother, uh, his daughter and him. And he's, the daughter's like, hey, wait, when can we get it? When can we get a cat? And he's like, oh, we can't get a cat because your mom is allergic to cats. And the kid's like, well, we can get a cat when mom is dead. 
And then obviously <laughs> it's, it's funny, it's entertaining, it's relatable, but the whole sentence makes no sense until the last word. We can get a cat when mom is the impactful thing, the impactful word is dead. Yep. So to facilitate the laughter point from the audience, if they don't laugh, you just move on because it's a story and no big deal. You weren't trying to be funny. You were just sharing some information. But I think that if you've created that sentence structure within your talking, you don't need to slow down during the general delivery of any of the words you're saying until you get to the key point, because the key point mm -hmm. is trying to facilitate a moment of silence. So you want to let silence hang. But in getting to that silence, you can tag, talk at any speed you're comfortable with. And it seems to come straight back to not so much about the delivery, but the content, like write your content properly. And the delivery will, in many ways, just happen naturally, isn't it? Yeah, it's over time, all comedians learn to be better writers. So they don't start off realizing that yep. they need to do that. But when they analyze their talks, like if it, the most powerful way you can improve a talk for a, a high level speaker is to take existing video of them, use a transcription service, mm -hmm. and then highlight all the reaction points in that talk, all the words and all the repetition that they had. Mm -hmm. There's nothing more powerful than reducing things to a script and working on it solely as a script. So if we could just take their words, transcribe them and work on it as a script, like a bunch of writers would do, we're doing exactly what you said there. We're just applying those writing techniques to creating content in the most efficient way possible and taking out all the emotional worry that people have around the topic of public speaking. You're just going to write words and now you're going to say words and you're going to structure it in a way that when something happens in the room that you're going to be 100% confident that you're not going to forget the words, that you're going to go off script and have some fun with it. And now no matter how much you repeat the same content it's going to be fun for you and delivery because it's going to change every time and you're going to be looking for little nuances that make things better so i think it comes back to content creation how you sound getting the words in the right structure writing the stuff out properly where you can you don't have to write everything out and then that really facilitates the good delivery so yeah it, it comes down to content creation and writing so I want to pull out uh, another one from that list of how to tell when your public speaker needs to be changed, which was they never teach you how to memorize your talk, which would be helpful as most people's biggest fear around public speaking is going blank on stage. Talk to yeah. us about that. Nearly everyone I talk to or when I reach out to students I have that have taken my course, they're always like, oh, that, that is my biggest fear. And I was like, well, it's mine too, actually. I don't want to be the person stood there goes blank. Like when I go into a meeting, there's nothing worse than that feeling that when you come out and you're like, oh, I can't believe I didn't say that. Why, why didn't I say that? My promotion is dependent on that. Budgetary approval is dependent on that. How could I forget that? That's insane. I think that's why a lot of people end up using presenter notes in the world of PowerPoint, which ruins your talk. If you have presenter notes, you're going to panic and read your notes. At some stage, it's going to happen, and then you don't look prepared. If you walk out with notes, your audience immediately goes, this person is unprepared. You don't see a comedian too often walking out with a bunch of notes in their hand or an experienced stage performer or someone giving a TED Talk, you would assume. So you need a way to memorize the content that people don't know that you're using. And the thing I learned from the world of stand-up comedy and performance was something called the memory palace, which is you visualizing every element. It's basically you taking every bullet point that's going to be in your talk and turning every bullet point into a highly visual story that makes sense to nobody but you. And then you visualize that story taking place in a familiar location to you. So my talk will often be my house, my kitchen, the house I grew up in. And all I'm doing while I'm on stage is walking sequentially through that house. Because that, you know, that moment you have where you're like, oh, your brain's like, oh, what do I say next? What's, what's the word? What's the word? It's nearly impossible to find the word because words have no visuals attached to them. But if you are trying to go in your head while you're on stage and actively talking, where am I in my house? 
So you just have those little visual aids created that you take a moment and visualize interacting with each other as they walk around the house. Best thing I ever learned in the world of public speaking, hands down, because it allows you to appear. You can't be conversational on stage if you're reciting memorized content that you haven't memorized very well. So you really have two choices. You can memorize it word for word through sheer repetition and do it at least 100 times so you don't, don't sound robotic. If you do it 10 or 15 times or 20 times, you're going to sound rehearsed and stumble over the words. I'm never going to prepare a talk or practice 100 times ever. I'm not like that. I don't have the attention span. I don't like public speaking in the first place. I don't want to do it once. I definitely don't want to do a hundred times in practice. So the other option is to use the memory palettes technique where you just make sure you hit all the key points. And that allows you to be very off the cuff and react to things in the moment and get back to it in a structure because you're only ever returning to not what word am I say, where am I in the room? So I think out of all the techniques in the world of public speaking, the memory palace is the most powerful one that you can learn and the most powerful one that nobody will ever teach you. There you go. Really cool advice and, and tips there. I think, I think to me, it's just really interesting. Like, yeah, people are scared of public speaking as general, but when you dive down into it, yeah, that fear of going blank is surely the, the, mm. um, the strongest thing. And it's just a worry of looking like a banana in front of people. There is consequences mm-hmm. to it. So it activates your fight or flight reflexes. So number one, it's just telling yourself, like, I'm not nervous. I am excited. And that's very hard to do. But if you're genuinely going to go up there and screw around with thousands of people as like a psychological experiment into can you create magic out of nothing in the moment using techniques that you've studied and prefer for, that's actually fun. So all of a sudden you're like, mm-hmm. I am going to have fun today with this in mm-hmm. some way. I'm going to go off script, be in the moment and do conversational public speaking, which in its essence is just speaking in the first place. And it's techniques to facilitate that not hack advice that people are like, oh, move your hands. Like, who cares? How you <laughs> yeah, that's it. I think well, what 80% of our business model is content over delivery for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So David, um, is there a book or a resource that's really influenced the way that you speak? question uh no it's it's more true watching comedians in general my favorite books that i've read on public speaking you know i only ever wrote my one because i couldn't find one that tackled all the things i actually wanted to know so i felt it Mm -hmm. genuinely had not been written i'll take stand-up comedy as a resource that works. Well, stand-up comedy is a great resource. Like yeah. talk, Carmine Gallo wrote Talk Like Ted, which was yep. a good one to define it. And then Chris Anderson wrote his own book on public speaking, and they're both good resources. I have a list somewhere of all the comedy ones. I think I have a, how do you pronounce that website? Quora or Quora? What's the one where they just ask uh, questions? Yeah, Quora. Yeah. Quora, that's the one. I have a list on there of uh, under my name of uh, all the recommended reading ones I have around uh, humor and comedy stuff if you want to do it. Yeah, right. And lastly, David, people like what you're saying. I would like to know a little bit more. Where can listeners find you? Yeah, um, well, you can find me in exotic Ireland somewhere at the moment in lockdown. <laughs> um, but no, other than that, davidnihill.com, I think is I have everything on that one. Or I put everything I learned the hard way from honing that public speaking program for years and years. And I just updated that and re-released that over the COVID lockdown. I was originally in San Francisco. So I just had scheduled a comedy conference, a tour, an Irish comedy tour. Also, everything was based on live events. So it all went out the window real fast. So I said, oh, what can I do to keep myself busy? So I remade that course I had and spent maybe three months polishing it off. So you can find that one at hackingpublicspeaking.com. And I, I think I was the only, I was trying to put a unique marketing angle on it. And I was like, you know what? There's all these courses online. Nobody ever takes them. And the more I looked into the completion rates, the 
lower and scarier they were. So with this one, I've been offering people 50% of their money back if they finish within 30 days just to get them to actually do it. It's been working really well. It's been good. I've just never seen it done before, but I'm like, I genuinely want these people to finish it and apply it so that the next time I'm in a meeting and they're presenting, they're not going to bore the life out of me as a person. So that's the best two places anyway. So thanks for asking. No worries. No worries. Thank you very much. And of course, there will be links to those recommendations and David's website down below. But otherwise, David Nihil, thank you very much for being a guest on the Presentation Boss podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. Head to presentationboss.com.au slash podcast, where you'll find the show notes for this episode, all other episodes and other free resources. If you know someone that you'd like to hear from on this show or think that you have something of value to share, email us at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend or we'd love for you to give us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find us. Have a great week.